Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Hey, Curtis. Neighbors, what's up? <laughs> all, all, all's good. Thanks for, thanks for joining. I feel like we've been teasing your, your eventually coming on this podcast for like 50, uh, for almost a year now. So uh, our mm. audience finally uh, getting, uh, getting the treat of... Uh, He's ready, ready, for, ready for the experience. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, are we, were we live yet? We're not live yet. This we're, live. This live. We're, we're live. We're live. We're live. We're live. We're live. We're live. Yes. All right. Well, I'm waiting to, uh, to post the... Uh, I have not quite yet posted the, the ticket uh, link for my uh, Hanania debate that has to be carefully oh. coordinated because Richard and I have to post it at the same time. Yeah, I'm debating Richard Hanania in LA uh, on February 9th. Excellent. That'll be at, at the Adventurers Club, which is this amazing, like Steve Zissou type, you know, facility. And it'll be, it'll be amazing. It'll be fun. It'll be uh, historic. It'll be yeah. something. I don't know. I'll, I'll try to um, I'll try to come come for it. Maybe we'll get a moment of Zen uh, crew or something. Uh, Dan's yeah. Dan in LA is too. They um, what uh, what are you hoping for in that debate? Um, what am I hoping for in that debate? Uh, you know, I think in every debate, you know, sort of the main objective is uh, to look as good as possible, and you know, in some ways that involves also. You know, there's some kinds of looking good where your interlocutor also looks good. That's definitely that's a that's a potential outcome. You know, on the other hand, I mean, you know, everyone has has areas that they're not really the best in or where their perspective is, you know, if not unusual, just, you know, poorly, poorly developed. And so I would sort of hope to bring, you know, I think that actually really, I mean, yeah, obviously I want to look good, but I am right. You know, what I really want, what I really want is, is for Richard to come away from this conversation, feeling, feeling that he's learned something, feeling that he's grown. And, 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 you know, I feel like when I have that, that perceptive, you know, perspective of this isn't a cage fight here, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn. I'm here to, I'm ready to learn myself, you know, and, um, you know, uh, maybe we could both grow. I don't know, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be amusing. I, th I think it'll be great. Um, I think, uh, I think a lot of things about Richard. I think he's very, uh, he's very intelligent. Um, he's kind of funny looking. I don't know, like. What, what, what do you think he has to learn? Or what, mm. do, you, what do you think he should learn? I think. I think that, I think that, you know, if I could sort of briefly summarize the kind of you know flaws or issues flaws is a strong word he's about a fellow human being uh the issues in kind of richard's thinking i feel that often 
a lot of his energy comes from a contrarian streak, which you're now seeing becoming kind of counter-contrarian. And it's always a little like whenever you get sort of counter-contrarian, you're in this weird space where you're sort of disagreeing with people, but you have this sort of wind of, of like power on your side in a way. And that's a sort of weird, bad combination. You know, somehow Richard manages to occupy the, you know, the very unusual position for our time of simultaneously disbelieving in the gospel of human uniformity and yet believing completely in sort of mass migration of a slave labor class. And so I, I think it's maybe it, it may just be because back home in Jordan, he grew up with a lot of servants or something. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, you know, delved into his background really, but like, you know, the, the, I feel that sort of the enthusiasm for kind of the, the slave labor model, like basically is makes me a little uncomfortable as an American who's, you know, sort of gone through, I mean, he is American. He's, he's technically, he's American, but, but, you know, like that, that, you know, that is, I think, a strange sort of combination. Uh, I think that I feel that more generally he sort of gets, you know, really deeply into these kinds of sort of frames of intellectual games about sort of the way things it's it's like he, he's written a couple of things recently about the budget process, right. Or the budget for what are we going to do about, you know, social security when it runs a 5% of GDP, you know, deficit. And I'm just like, you know, Richard, like you're going in and getting very autistic about all of these. Do you know the term? If you want to spend money on this thing, you've got to go out and find like that thing, which can be like scored as like, you know, adding $5 billion to the budget. But in reality, the whole thing is just pumping out 10, 15% of GDP is red ink, right? You know, and the sort of the principle of doing budgeting in the congressional appropriations process, sort of on this like, uh, you know, sort of within this framework that pretends that really still in some way America is not on, is, is on the gold standard. Well, I mean, America is really not on the gold standard. It's really on a soft currency. And you may not really like that or think that's the best way to run a country in abstract or uh, whatever. You know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, someone was uh, on Twitter was was posting that great line, you know, the purpose of the system is what it does sort of thing. And in DC, there's a lot of like, people don't really look squarely at the reality of what DC is. And like, for example, you know, make my favorite observation, which is that we don't actually have an executive branch in DC, we just have a legislative branch. And because the whole executive executive branch is micromanaged by the congressional process, right? Uh, you know, the whereas the, the president's association with the executive branch is that um, the White House, which is not even really controlled by the president, issues executive orders, which basically, in terms of their constitutional status as like law, are uh, tweets, basically. And so, you know, you essentially have this thing whose who's budget, process, and personnel are all controlled, if controlled in a really strange, distant way by the Congress. And just the fact that it's called the executive branch and, um, the president's, you know, executive process gets to sort of dot it with 4,000, like, you know, 
political appointee roles, which really are not really powerful over the things like the, you know, the pyramid shaped or, you know, those of us who have worked in the private sector know what a pyramid shaped org chart is. And when we look at the so-called executive branch, we see a pyramid shaped org chart and we're like, oh, that must be a thing like the thing that I know the thing is. And it's just not a thing like that. And so, you know, the thing is when you're basically kind of coloring within the lines there and you're talking about you know, the budget process as though it was like a budget process that had limits on its ability to create red ink. I, you know, there, there are many ways in which I don't agree with the MMT people, but their fundamental insight is essentially that the soft currency is essentially government stock. And so, you know, you, it's really weird that, you know, a company is issuing 15% of its market cap in new stock every year. Okay, that's weird. It's definitely weird. But like, there's a lot of weird things about it, but it is what it is, right? And so, you know, there are all these people sort of playing the game that would be a sort of legitimate game if it isn't what it isn't, you know, what it is. So, you know, over in DC, for example, there, there are all these kind of Project 2025 people where they're like, well, you know, if we get a new Trump administration, it's got to get the right people in charge so we can really run the government. I'm like, you know, Nixon tried to run the government and he had far more capable people than you're, you'll ever have, Mr. Trump. And there was no way he could fucking run the government. And they just stabbed him in the back and took him out. Right. And so you're just like you're sort of when you play along with this kind of kayfabe and take it seriously and your purpose of playing along with the kayfabe and taking it seriously is not to be like, okay, do you know what a shoot is in kayfabe? It's where you turn a like fake wrestling match into a real, like you actually get pissed at each other. You know, if you have a plan to play along with this kayfabe and turn it into a shoot, that's one thing. But the thing is, if you're actually just sort of playing along with the thing and you're like, you know, to switch, you know, examples, you're like, Oh no, like, you know, an incompetent plagiarist, you know, with got put in charge of Harvard due to, you know, her race or really her partisan affiliation. Uh, how do we fix this and turn Harvard back into what it should be? It's like, well, are you really thinking that? Or are you just trying to score some like cheap media hit crack? Because if you know, you're just trying to score some cheap media hit crack, that's great. But the thing is, if you think that you're doing something real there, and that's like you have this like real chance of like really changing Harvard, man, you know, and, you know, like, 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 because uh, and eliminating racism in both directions, you know, because actually, have you thought about it? Do you know that the Democrats are actually the real racists, you know, and, and like somehow people who like who get sort of, you know, kicked out of the left and wash up on, on the right, um, you know, uh, and realize that, you know, you know, are always just like, well, everybody's going to realize this soon, right? And I'm just like, dude, you have no idea how this works, right? And 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 there's this this sort of you know historical ignorance there. You know, um, um, I was just reading the um, God. Let me let me find this. This is too precious. To, so I have a book which is um, the history of Cleveland. And it's an 800-page book on the history of Cleveland, uh, which ends um, when it was published in 1850. Uh, in 1950, sorry. And, you know, as you can imagine, 
ending in 1950 is a sort of right. You know, the main problem with this book is that there's there's no arc there. Actually, the title of the last chapter is called Greatness Achieved. And I'm like, you know, okay, imagine that you take the um, the author of this this book, um, um, what's his name? William Ganson Rose, and you have some kind of time kidnapping machine and you just like rip him out of, of time, out of like 1850, and you take him on a walking tour of Cleveland in 2023. Dude's going to be like, oh, what the hell happened? How, how, we just like, what, 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 Great, right, right. You know, because greatness achieved. What? Greatness, greatness achieved. achieved. Yeah, greatness perfected. Greatness <laughs> finalized, you know. And you try to convince him. Maybe you try to convince him that, like, you know, you'd achieved, like, outward greatness, but we've achieved, like, true inward, like, moral greatness. Like, you know, think about all these sins you were committing as you walk around this, like, decry. have you been to Cleveland? Anyone, anyone here been, been to Cleveland? No, but I, I love uh, to say a bit. And they can often yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I prefer to say it the French way, de trois. Um, but, uh, you know, but... <laughs> yeah. Real greatness has never been tried, uh, Curtis. Real, real greatness has never been tried, right? And so, you know, I was reading this and I came across, you know, it's sort of most of the text of this book is just like, you know, sort of cool, great, amazing things that happened, you know, last year. And, um, was Cleveland a, a political machine city? Um, that's a good question. Cleveland was originally John D. Rockefeller's oil town. So I suspect that the Rockefeller interests always had, you know, this is not a deep analytical history. This is more of like a, a congratulatory chronicle here. Um, it's a strange sort of thing, but you know, I'm reading this in any case, I get um, to the sort of the following three historical entries, and this is from 1919. Cathedral Latin School was dedicated June 8th. The first graduating class totaled seven. In 10 years, there was a capacity enrollment of 800 boys, and the school soon won a high rating in scholarship and athletics. A nationwide drive to jail radicals and red agitators was started June 12th as a result of the bombing of Mayor Davis House. Shaker Players, second of Greater Cleveland's senior dramatic groups, was organized under the direction of Mrs. William Cochran. Now, one of these things is not quite like the other, is it, right? So, you know, the, the uh, and you're just like, you know, you're, you're, you're walking around modern Cleveland, you know, with, with William Ginson Rose, and he's like, what went wrong? And then he's like, Maybe it's Cathedral Latin. Maybe the scholar athletes from Cathedral Latin just are going like full clockwork orange on like Christmas Day shoppers and like, you know, things have come to come to an end, you know, um, or could it be the Shaker players um, with their, their uh, you know, no, I get it. I get it. You know what happened? Maybe we didn't jail enough radicals and red agitators. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and like, and, and if he was very intelligent, he might basically be looking at this and he'd be thinking, this is red Cleveland. This is red. We're looking at red Cleveland in like 2024. And, and like, you know, and, and so to have that, or, you know, there's this, you know, amazing sort of line in history from, y'all, y'all know about the Seattle general strike. I don't know. About no, that. I actually don't. You've been, you've been to, to Seattle. It's in the, um, it's sort of North of, of Portland. It's Pacific Northwest. 
you've been there. Uh, so I, I know in, about Chaz. Uh, I know about Chaz, but I don't think that's the Seattle general strike. No, it's not the Seattle general strike. Although there's a very interesting line from the Seattle general strike to that. So in 1919, when Obviously, uh, I think the Wall Street bombing was that year, maybe. You know about the Wall Street bombing. Um, somebody drove a wagon full of gunpowder. You, know, you can still see the pockmarks on like buildings in Wall Street from the Wall Street bombing. 1919, anarchists, you know, communists, foreigners, you know, that kind of people, right? You know, and the, and actually a, a lot of the, you know, just if we're going to, sort of talk about the ethnic element here, a lot of the, just ethnically, a lot of the people involved in some of these, these early radical, you know, communist movements were, um, they were, especially in the Pacific Northwest were, were Finns. It was a huge Finnish problem actually. Right. So, so the, um, and sort of the Scandinavian energy in general was much higher at that time. So, so in any case, in, in 1919, you know, Things going as they are in Russia, that's getting a lot of press, obviously. Uh, you know, the first red scare by the fact that they call it a scare, you can tell who won. And the, the, uh, but not sort of in an immediate way because you had the Seattle general strike in 1919 is I think best chronicled by a book by the guy who was the mayor of Seattle named Ole Hansen. Uh, who could barely speak English. He was this weird Scandinavian bro. And he's like, all right, the Wobblies are trying to take the city and establish a Soviet Republic in Seattle. Not making this up at all. I'm not exaggerating whatever. They're like, we're going to have a, IWW is going to have a general strike. They're going to enforce a general strike. They're going to try to create an alternate government. No problem. You know, we're going to, um, you know, bring in the American Legion. And actually in Centralia, Oregon, they had the Centralia Massacre, which is this like epic pick, pitched battle between, you know, armed veterans of the American Legion and the Wobblies, the IWW, just intense stuff, right? And so, you know, the thing is basically when when Rufo and and friends are like, we're going to end DIA and, you know, and, and, and universities, we're going to clean all this up. I'm like, you really don't think the, like, Mississippi State Legislature tried some of this stuff in, like, the 1920s? You really don't think there was any, has ever been any attempt to, like, get communists out of, you know, universities, Hollywood, Hollywood, nobody thought of, oh my God, wow, there's a lot of progressives in Hollywood. What does that word progressive really mean, right? You know, and, and, and you're just like, you know, there's a sort of art of like pulling on this long historical string, just sort of little enough so that it looks like here's this sort of small solvable problem. And, you know, and in conservative fundraising, you're sort of always at this like tipping point. If you give like a little bit more like, you're going to give 20, but you, you could give 50, right? You know, and if you and everyone else like you gives 50, like we're going to solve this. We're going to, you know, Harvard is going to, you know, get back to teaching only Greek and Latin and theology or something, 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 right? You know, and, and it's just like you're, I think these people really believe this, but like, you know, or it's like I was talking to someone in DC and basically you know, outlining my sort of difference between kind of my vision of like, I don't think it can happen in 2025, but, um, you know, what would have to happen in 2025 of sort of like the difference between crossing the Rubicon and 
fishing in the Rubicon, right? And the problem is that basically, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, I, I, I took the line fishing in, a Rub- in the Rubicon from this book by Ernst von Solomon, who was writing in the 20s, you know, Germany in the 20s. And he's like, you know, what I really hate is the sort of German general who basically marches right up to the Rubicon and then sits down and fishes. And so, you know, we're in this sort of strange political season where, like, to raise money on the Republican side or to raise support on the Republican side, you have to kind of fish in the Rubicon. And, you know, that's kind of the state of the art. You know, if you're going to some, like, trout stream, you know, up in, like, Nice or something, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, Nice. Nice is nice, you know, but, like, let's go a little south here. Let's, you know, <laughs> um and then they, you know, they sort of all sit down and fish because they have no idea where they're going. And the result is sort of January 6th was this kind of classic mass fishing in the Rubicon episode where sort of everyone kind of LARPs real regime change. And what do you know? Uh, it turns out that you need a license to fish in the Rubicon and um, um, go, go a license for that, mate. You know, it turns out, no, they didn't have a license, you know, and, and like, and, and that's how that goes on. And so, Basically, it's like I was talking to this, like, you know, very informed senior person in D.C. about, like, this Project 2025 stuff and why, you know, it can't possibly work. And and I'm like, you know, dude, if you accept a political appointment in the second Trump administration, you're looking at an ante of $200,000 in legal bills. Right. You're going to be prosecuted. You're going to be sued. You're going to unless you basically do one thing and one thing only a craven treasonous thing of like doing that and immediately switching sides and spending as long get your whole time in the office. Spend that with ingratiating yourself with the permanent staff. By the end, they may consider you almost one of them. And that will make your life much, much easier. And, and like, and it's obviously the logical necessary thing to do more because even if you do this thing of saying, okay, I'm going to actually work for the president in these agencies, you know, and I'm, who cares about the legal bills? I have a trust fund, whatever, 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 you know, like, you know, um, I happen to be a martyr, you know, um, if everything goes, goes badly, I'll just burn myself alive capital steps and get public attention, right? Even if you do that, you're not going to get anything done, right? And, you know, there's absolutely, there's sort of no possibility of taking this sort of bizarre ship of Washington and, like, actually turning it into what you think you're selling the voters. And yet you have to sell the voters all this Sturm und Drang and, and, like, drama. And so you're sort of in the worst of these situations where you basically have no choice but to either be lying to people to raise money because you know that you can't do what they expect you to do with that money, which means you're lying, and or basically going to jail, you know, entering into a heinous, you know, undetermined legal process at the end of which you're probably fucked in some way or another. And the real, you know, actually, it's not really a choice between those two things. No. Your only choice is both, right? Either that or don't play the game. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. 
we have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlined accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash zen. That's netsuite.com slash zen to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash zen. I have a yeah. quick question for you. So, sorry. In, in, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I think what would be... I ranted useful, too much, but... No, 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 no. Please. For our listeners is... so so. Have we ever had an executive that's an actual executive? And when was the last time that happened? And then that was definitely a, where, where did where did was, we go wrong? When when did we lose the ability to have the executive branch? Uh, so so I would say that generally, you know, of course, there's been a fluctuation in these institutions over time. But what you generally see is that DC is to whatever extent. This is a long. It's it's quite an analogy in some ways, but DC is basically run by an executive like like a startup about every seventy five or eighty years. So basically, Alexander Hamilton, you know, in, in a way, when you look at the relationship of Hamilton and Washington, first of all, it's very sort of clearly explicit that that the new federal government after the shit show that was the Confederation period is basically set up to be what I would call an accountable monarchy. So you're like, okay, we're going to, Washington is not going to be like, become like a hereditary king or a military dictator. Many people wanted him to. He's like, okay, we need order. We need a real freaking government here. Like all of the stuff where we're like rebelling against government itself turned out to be just utterly retarded. And so we're going to actually need to create a real federal government. And what they found, they came up with for their founding team by some genius had a lot of resemblance to the sort of co-tenure of like Larry Page and Eric Schmidt at Google. And the Larry Page figure, you know, or the Page and Bryn figure is very much Alexander Hamilton, uh, maybe a little bit less of a nerd than those guys and more of a, you know, a uh, more more napoleon like figure in some ways but like washington provides the gravitas hamilton comes in he's like this young startup bro he's working 100 hour weeks he's the secretary of the treasury but really he's running the whole of washington 
you know, Jefferson is like, I'm the Secretary of State. Why is Hamilton running the State Department, right? He's running the State Department because he's a manager and you're not, you know. And and so, I mean, this is a tiny organization by, you know, present day standards. I don't know how many people Hamilton's government had in it. Maybe it was less than a thousand, you know, probably less than a thousand. I don't know. It was small, but, you know, that ran like a real institution. Um and then the pattern is that these institutions are sort of created and they, and like, like an aging company, they sort of lose that kind of top down energy. They get kind of caretaker type management. Um, you know, who's the guy in charge of Google today? Pretty, pretty, pretty yeah, something, 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 Sundar, Sundar, right. You know, and, and right. Uh, I'll just keep calling him pretty, but you know, like with, with, <laughs> With Pradeep in charge, like everything just sort of, you know, cruises away on autopilot. He's a, he's a peacetime CEO. And if you extend, um, if you extend that sort of pattern into, uh, you know, a government which is sort of completely unaccountable and sort of completely arbitrary, you see it becoming oligarchical in various ways. And so constitutional regime becomes this sort of, kind of, uh, I guess people in the North would accuse it of having been dominated by the South, which is sort of true for some senses of the word true. Uh, but in any case, all of this basically needs to be rebooted when the whole thing explodes in 1860. And in 1860, you see, uh, you know, again, the, you know, this somewhat federal sort of ambiguously federal versus national government is really refounded in the federal era in DC in the 1860s. And once again, what you see with this structure is that it has Abraham Lincoln uh, at the top and Abraham Lincoln is a sort of alpha politician. And he's really, he's just, he's America's first great politician in some ways. He's just pure politician. Uh, He's not, uh, he's obviously, he's an autodidact. He's not, he, he sort of takes office with people assuming that he'll kind of be a nobody and like people like Seward and Stanton will be running the regime. That's true to some extent, but um, Lincoln has these very, very capable team of two private secretaries, John Hay and um, got his first name, uh, Nicolay. And again, you know, here are these 23 year old startup bros working hundred hour weeks, basically, trying to create new institutions. And and that creates sort of, you know, that, that's sort of the founding moment of like Gilded Age America. And of course, Gilded Age America is founded by this Republican Party, which at the time is the most radical left-wing party in, in, in the, the known universe, basically. And, you know, Marx is a huge admirer of Lincoln, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really a mistake to sort of separate this from the general kind of political context. Obviously, the North versus the South is left versus right. But when left wins, it basically ossifies sort of into a post-revolutionary structure rather in the way that the Chinese government, which was once a very revolutionary government, became actually very sort of small C conservative in all possible ways. And so you know, the rule of the radical Republicans and, of course, you know, the senatorial regime that follows the assassination of Lincoln. I'm still amazed that they haven't, like, re tried to, to re, uh, re-heroize Thaddeus Stevens 
who was kind of de facto running the country for a while. You know, he had very interesting racial views. Um, I guess he had a, um, you know, a biracial housekeeper who many people suspected was his mistress. And he was very, uh, you know, very, very insistent on really properly, truly subjugating the South. That didn't work out perfectly. The sort of radical republicanism, you know, collapses really and just becomes what's called, a, you know, the great barbecue of like corrupt late 19th century America. And if you walk around American cities, you'll see enormous amounts of stuff was built in this period. It's all relatively beautiful. You know, you've probably heard about like how fast Empire State Building was was built. Like, you know, this is the, you know, 18, you know, 70 to like 1910 is this like Chinese, like golden age for America where everything gets done really, really fast. It's insanely competitive. It's insanely corrupt. And like nobody's in charge. And this feeling of like nobody being in chargeness is sort of what brings about kind of the next revolution in American history, because by the like late 19th century, the level of, and you also, you have this like, you know, element of like, especially with sort of all the like, you know, scum of the earth, you know, immigration that's going on there, Irishmen, you know, Italians, Jews, like strange things from the Balkans that like don't even have names, you know, and, and like all of this, like HP Lovecraft underswell is like, you know, sucking into these cities and it's being sucked into these political systems. You know, you probably heard like boss tweed, you know, you're basically bossism is kind of riding rampant and, and Americans of like, of like a better social class, you know, sort of maybe, you know, America is still a third world country in some ways at this time. It's obviously a very economically successful third world country, the original developing country, you might say, but it was really developing. And so American elites basically, you know, sort of have always been, um, you know, slaves to the latest intellectual fashions in Europe and especially in London. And so, you know, the best Americans basically kind of look at these kind of, you know, this is uh, the heyday of kind of our statesmanship in England, you know, this whole new model of like, universities entwined with the state is being tried in Germany. And at the time, German universities are still sort of the best in the world. So there's a lot of the university model that actually comes from Germany. And these, these American intellectuals and, you know, prominently, I was like to, you know, um, if you remember John Hay, Nixon's secretary from earlier, uh, Hay is later in in the sort of McKinley administration becomes kind of the founder of modern U.S. foreign policy as we know it. He's good friends with Henry Adams, who you've probably heard of. They sort of reside in this little group house in D.C., kind of a you know rationalist, uh, you know, a dorm uh, equivalent. But in what was it a polyjule or? Uh... No, I don't think. I, well, they were very close. I don't think they did that in those times, but like, you know, why did Clover Adams kill herself? We'll never really know. Was it a poly thing going wrong? You know, like these things are lost to history, but, uh, but you know, it was basically the, proto EA. It was basically proto EA. Right. And like Oliver Wilder Holmes is hanging out there, you know, huffing off his vape pen in the bathroom, you know, like the, uh, you can see it, you can picture it. And basically these intellectuals sort of have kind of the common problem of intellectuals, which is, you know, sort of looking at the world 
and saying in a very EA-like way, because this is basically what EA, you know, or sort of any of these movements boil down to, is you're just looking at the world and saying, wow, the world is fucked. We're so smart. Why aren't we in charge? And, you know, that's sort of the core of early progressivism, like, wow, the world is fucked. We're so smart. Why aren't we in charge? Uh, and the, like, this sort of this desire for this kind of natural ruling class to kind of sort of break out of its kind of purely decorative gilded age, age of innocence, you know, rule and really just like command the full power and resources of the state, uh, you know, was just, it was this undeniable, like, you know, just the element of aristocracy learning, yearning to break free. I mean, all of of government because oligarchy is the expression of an aristocratic of ruling class, which feels the right to rule. And Oh boy, did these guys feel the right to rule. And so you see that starting to sort of break through even with Woodrow Wilson, of course, where, you know, the word progressive has been a euphemism for communist, you know, really since the late twenties, but in the teens, it was not, there was a lot more sort of variety of, you know, in New York city, they were called goo goos, like good government people. Right. And it's sort of all the same thing. So Wilson actually, you know, when he's elected governor of New Jersey, he has to navigate this. Of course he's elected as a Democrat. He has to navigate this insane environment of like, the New Jersey bosses. And one of the things, and this is kind of inspiring that, that early progressives do at this time is they find the party system, you know, this is where the roots of like kind of referring in a derogatory way to the word politics sort of comes from, because basically politics, i.e. democracy to these people is like this, like disgusting, loathsome thing. And they're like, we're going to reinvent, you know, the idea of democracy as a sort of golden idol that in practice means that we get, you know, power out of the hands of politicians. And so, you know, so we're going to basically, you know, destroy the village to save it as, as you might, as you might say. (laughs) So, you know, and they go about, you know, doing, you know, with the aid of sort of Walter Lippmann kind of people are understanding kind of the guidance of, of political, of public opinion by a media class, then this is also coming to sort of fruition in the ideas of like Walter Lippmann or even like, you know, Pulitzer in the early part of the century, all of, you know, everything is sort of bending toward the creation of this platonic guardian class. And, you know, which is the, the, you know, the, the, the PMC as we know it today. And, you know, this sort of comes to a head with, yes, Wilson is, is a progressive, you know, in power, but Wilson doesn't have, you know, and he has a sense of being able to make foreign policy decisions by himself. Uh, You know, he doesn't really have the sense of being, he's not really taking in the old regime. It's of course when FDR is elected and he's elected, you know, in the midst of this sort of insane national crisis, which he kind of does, you know, 
in before his inauguration, which is in March at that time, he actually refuses to cooperate in, with Hoover in fixing anything at all. FDR is elected on this traditional democratic platform. You have to remember that the Democrats are the conservative party at this time. You know, if you look at the, the platform under which FDR is elected, it sort of bears no resemblance to the New Deal at all. He doesn't have a mandate to do what he does. At the same time, he is, you know, a patrician of the, you know, one of America's greatest, oldest families. He has tremendous self-confidence and he has this whole movement of all of this basically elite overproduction, you know, he sort of already started in a way. And he has all of these people that just want to flood into DC and make it this, this completely new thing. Um, do you want me to do, I, I sometimes do a little performance of FDR's inaugural address, just the last 10 paragraphs. Do you want that? I, I, I think that, I would, that would be good. But the one question I have for you is it feels like this is a criminally understudied part of U.S. history. Well, maybe 1900. Well, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I mean, it's certainly studied. But the thing is that when you're studying something, you sort of need a take and it doesn't really match anyone's take. And so you can basically study, like, narratives don't just jump out of history. Like, you need to sort of bring the narrative. And this is why you can, oh, we lost Derek. This is why you can, you know, you can write um, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm sure everything in People's History of the United States, it's like a fact is pretty much like factual, but it tells a very different story than the one uh, I would like to tell. Anyway, I did a performance of this actually at a poetry reading in in New York, but um, um, let's say. And then the, the follow-up question after yeah. you do the performance, Curtis, is because yeah. I, I think one thing that comes across in your writing, which I very much agree with having been in Silicon Valley startups, is the competence of intellectuals relative to people who actually kind of do things. And what's just so puzzling to me is how in that period they somehow we're able to kind of jump the fire break from the kind of ivory oh, tower yeah, yeah, yeah. of competence. My favorite, my, my favorite example of that is, and it's so remarkable and people just expect that they sort of silently and visibly expect that to be true in some ways. My favorite example of this is actually from the UK. It's, it's Lloyd George. So David Lloyd George, of course, radical liberal Welsh statesman, um, you know, has a traditional uh, English, you know, upbringing, playing fields of Eton, Oxbridge, all of that. No contact with the real world whatsoever, uh, as far as I can determine. And in 1914, the British start this war and they realize something, they created this war, really, and, and they, they realize something that we've uh, learning all over again, um, you know, along the Dnieper, which is that for trench warfare, you need a lot of artillery. And in particular, you need a lot of artillery shells. And, you know, the way that the British Army has been, um, you know, contracting those shells has been very, very inefficient and like little, little one-offy. So Lloyd George, being a public school boy with no experience of practical matters whatsoever, somehow manages to basically in like a matter of like three or four months with no computers, telephones, anything like that, creates a ministry of munitions, which just like, like mushrooms out of the ground, like these vast factories 
no environmental impact statements, of course, you know, but like for, for, for creating shelves. Right. And it's just this amazing demonstration of how, you know, whatever the liberal education of that time was, it actually, I mean, it treated staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but it, it actually created people who could literally do things. Um, let me read this speech in a way I already spoiled it. Uh, you know, I did this in the poetry reading and didn't, um, I was just like, this is a, this is a, not my speech. It has, it's a historical speech from 1933. If I read the temper of our people correctly, we now realize as we have never realized before our interdependence on each other that we cannot merely take, but we must give as well. That if we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army, willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. Because, because without such discipline, without such discipline, no progress is made. No leadership becomes effective. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our laws and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership that aims at a larger good. This I propose to offer. Pledging that the larger purposes will bind upon us all is a sacred obligation with a unity of duty hitherto evoked only in time of armed strife. With this pledge taken, I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people dedicated to a disciplined attack. When this image and to this end is feasible under the form of government, which we have inherited from our ancestors. Our constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in the emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism the modern world has produced. It is to be hoped that the normal balance of executive and legislative authority may be wholly adequate to meet the unprecedented task before us. But it may be that an unprecedented, an, an unprecedented demand and need for undelayed action may call for temporary departure from that normal balance of public procedure. I am prepared, under my constitutional duty, to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures, or such other measures as the Congress may build out of, its, out of its experience and wisdom, I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, and in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power. To wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me were we in fact invaded by a foreign foe. For the trust reposed in me. I will return the courage and the devotion that befit the time. I can do no less. We face the arduous days that lie before us 
in the warm courage of the national unity, with the clear consciousness of seeking old and precious moral values, with the clean satisfaction that comes from the stern performance of duty by old and young alike. We aim at the assurance of a rounded and permanent national life. We do not distrust the, the, future, the future of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. In this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. End of speech. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think... Uh, if you, Julius uh, Caesar. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Franklin Bonaparte right there, right? You know, Franklin Delano Bonaparte. And... Uh, and what's even more amazing is he does this, right? He's basically just like, you know, I'm going to just, you know, ignore whatever it said about whatever bullshit I said on the campaign trail. And I'm just going to be the CEO of Washington. FDR does not exactly have like one startup bro who's like the fixer for his whole thing. He has 10 or 20. He's got a lot of, you know, imagine, you know, if if you could basically just like draft the best like... 30, 40, 50 CEOs from like uh, Silicon Valley and just send them to Washington and say, here, you have a basically unlimited you know, budget. You can do anything you want. Go and fuck this. That's a very different thing from making Rex Tillerson the CEO of Exxon, which I'm sure is a very reactive position to begin with, putting him at, you know, on the seventh floor of the Truman Building and saying, okay, you have the title now. Uh, what do you do? Right. The reality is you can't do anything like, you know, because like the real question is, what is U.S. foreign policy? Why do we have a foreign policy? What is this thing? Where did it get there? Right. You know, and the you know, that's a question you can ask only if you have this kind of godlike FDR power. Uh, you know, I was reading recently the diaries of Harold Ickes, who was FDR's Secretary of the Interior, like, you know, he's sort of just one of FDR's kind of fixers that he uses to, like, fix things, right? And he goes, he describes cabinet meetings. And his cabinet meetings are really like the like a C-suite meeting. Like, you know, like, they're like, okay, what shit came up this week? Let's talk about, you know, the shit that came up and how to deal with the shit that came up. And, you know, I mean, if you go to, like, a cabinet meeting today, it's like this ritualized, you know, you know, process, which sort of pretends to have some resemblance to an executive process, but in fact is a purely like reactive process because what you're getting, you know, when you have the issues and decisions that like the leaders in, in, you know, DC deal with now, what you're getting is shit that got, you know, it's essentially exception handling. It's like shit that got kicked up the chain because nobody can sort of handle it handle it as a lower level. So state and DOD need to be coordinated. 
on some like bullshit or whatever. What do we do about the Houthis? You know, here are your options, Mr. President. You know, there's three boxes, but, you know, check the middle one. Right. I mean, I love having Biden as president actually for a number of reasons, but you know, one of them is he really, especially sort of in the, his like vertiginous mental decline really symbolizes the absence of like any executive presence in there. The truth is, he doesn't need to not have Alzheimer's, right? Actually, the system works better if he has Alzheimer's and just does what he's told, right? And 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 so trust the process, trust the process right? Oh, this is absolutely what any everyone who's anyone who understands how anything works believes in DC. They believe in like trust the process. I'm like, well, the problem with trust the process is that I trusted the process of like. Uh, virology. And then it turned out that they were basically like, you know, inventing COVID, you know, to get more grants and not for any like nefarious purpose to take over the world or just, you know, just to get more grants, except some of them were on the like Chinese side of the fence and like the Chinese military, maybe there was some Chinese military involvement. And why were, why was the Chinese military doing this to get more grants? Like, you know, that's just the way. Maximizer, you don't need to worry about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Worry, 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 worry about, worry, worry about the grant maximizer worry about when the, when the AIs start to get into grant writing you know that's when you really uh, you know I'm sure the AIs are already very deep into grant writing so you know the uh, grant writing was made for AIs and so you know Easiest you have way this... to prevent uh, AI, AGI give grant uh, AI tenure yeah yeah that's right that's right uh you know you have to nationalize it all, all under the department of, of 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 artificial intelligence and after 50 years you'd have like eliza right and um you could actually make the make the field go backward but but yeah you know like it's sort of like this this is you know this is what i get you know from a silicon valley perspective and then you know from a silicon valley perspective again when I imagine, okay, how does this thing need to be reorganized? It's just absolutely ridiculous that if you were fixing, you know, an institution like this, which basically makes IBM look like SpaceX, right? You know, and it makes Boeing look like SpaceX, right? You know, it's just absurd that you would basically be like, okay, let's try to fix this thing within its existing policies, procedures, and whatever. No, you'd basically like create a new thing. Right. The, I mean, this is just the normal startup way of doing something. You create a new thing. And like, you know, I sort of, um, um, you know, outlined to this senior person, like what would creating a new thing look like? And he sort of had two uh, criticisms of my approach. You know, one of this, one of them was the sort of obvious one of like, well, if this doesn't work, we all go to jail. And I'm like, well, yeah, the problem is you go to jail for crossing the Rubicon. But, you know, if you don't uh, go directly to Rome after that and, and, and take Rome. But, you know, these days you also go to jail for fishing in the Rubicon. So the thing is, if you can't fish in the Rubicon, you know, then you can't, you know, be in this business at all. So... You know, it's basically go big or go home. And, you know, the sort of everything, all of this logic is, I mean, Caesar himself crosses the Rubicon because if he basically doesn't, he gets like, you know, tried and executed basically in Rome, right? And so he really has no choice. I mean, to compare Donald Trump to to Caesar is, is ridiculous, of course, in many ways. But, but you know, sort of the system is unconsciously 
setting up these same kinds of dynamics. I think, unfortunately, the sort of Project 2025 of like the real Trump administration has never been tried, you know, thing kind of has to be tried to show how badly it will work. And at that point, you know, people will sort of see my like kind of obvious observation here. But the thing that was striking about this conversation was that, you know, like the person I was talking to didn't at all disagree of like my version of Washington or how Washington works or like any of that, you know, you just sort of couldn't quite see that step to know we're doing this over again. But the second thing that was even more interesting, you know, there's a sort of obsession, you know, on the Rubicon fishing right now with like, how do we get the right people? How do we find, you know, people who are like, ideologically committed, you know, but like willing to, you know, capable and they know DC as well. And I'm like, okay, you've just created like a Venn diagram with like five circles there and the intersection between them was like three people. Right. You know, and, and I was like, you know, okay, you know, here's, here's, um, here's what you do if you get elected president in, you know, 2029 or whatever. Um, you're like, I don't have an executive branch. You elected me to be chief executive. I'm going to start creating an executive branch. I'm going to basically avoid the whole appropriations process by funding this directly out of the Fed. And, you know, I was like, well, I was Jerome Powell going to, you know, allow that. I'm like, well, you know, an hour after you're inaugurated, you know, sir, Jerome Powell's like card key doesn't work anymore. You know, <laughs> um, the uh, his badge won't even let him into the building. Like that's basically how... And then you're like, okay, because, you know, the Federal Reserve, we have this soft currency, right? And the thing is, if you look at the Federal Reserve, you're trying to restore executive authority here. You look at the Fed and you're like, hmm, well, this is part of the government. So it's obviously described by the Constitution, right? So I'm, I'm like Constitution, the Constitution, I'm looking at the Constitution here. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it in Article 1, so it's clearly not part of the legislative branch. Uh, I don't see it in Article 3, so it's clear. I know. It's part of the executive branch. That means I'm in charge of it. That means basically as soon as I'm elected president, I can go over to the Eccles building and basically print a bunch of money to fund myself to do whatever the fuck I want. Right? You know, the Constitution basically says that. So you're like, okay. Then you're like you're saying in a very very explicit way. Did we lose Eric? Was this was this no, too Eric, Eric, Eric? kind of goes in and out with his camera. I mean, okay. he's got that special you know tube based camera. Yeah, yeah, I got it. The tube's overheated, right? And and the um, and so you're like, okay, I'm in this sort of startup you know situation where I'm creating a new government from scratch. Whoa, that's like really, really heavy. But who would I rely on to do it? And, you know, I'm just like, okay, you know, call Sam Altman, right? And I'm pretty sure Sam Altman has a pretty big Rolodex of people who know how to get shit done and scale it at a very, very rapid speed. Um, you know, there's sort of only one problem, which is that they're all gay shit lips. And I'm just like, you have to realize that this is not a problem. And, you know, this is sort of the most important thing to realize about regime change is that you're thinking of regime change as this like radical ideological thing. And it's not, it's not at all an ideological thing. It is the opposite of an ideological thing. It is absolutely the end of ideology. And the guy who really realized this was Napoleon. 
And Napoleon, basically, as you may know, started out as a revolutionary general. He was, he was, he was, he was Jacobin. He was in there. He wasn't like, you know, quite in there doing reign of terror stuff, but that was the side he was on. And he basically realizes that France has this vacuum of effective authority. He makes himself like first consul, like we're like LARPing the Romans. And so Napoleon basically has this concept of the career open to talents, which basically means it didn't matter what side you were on in the revolution. If you wanted to work for Napoleon, you just had to be good. And the thing is, when you have an organization, which is a process-based reactive organization, the way DC today actually works, it is very, very true that personnel are policy and that, you know, you have these ridiculous procedures that sort of get manipulated and subverted by people like Fauci who actually know how to command the system. You can't fire Fauci, replace him with someone else and expect them to have the power of Fauci because it's all, all this power comes out of these informal networks, these like Byzantine processes in which no one is ever personally responsible for decisions. <laughs> Terrible way to run a railroad. I mean, you know, and we see just, you know, even a hint of that, in the way like sort of Boeing or United Launch Alliance or whatever works, you know, you compare that to SpaceX and like there's a difference in effectiveness of like one to two orders of magnitude. Even when you compare SpaceX to Blue Origin, they're both startup space. But Elon was like, okay, I'm going to build space the way uh, like I'm just going to, you know, use the literature build all of my processes from scratch, do everything, you know, faster, cheaper, like, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to make a sort of space industry instead of a space, like, you know, one-off thing. I, I ran into, there was a very interesting, his, yes. Oh, I was going to say, did you, did you happen to read the biography at all or get any of the bits and pieces? Uh, yeah, I did. I don't know. Like, so, they're not like, I haven't read the Ashley Vance one. Um, but go well, on. the thing I thought was most interesting in the Isaacson thing is his process in terms of just if you were to go run the government. The first thing he asks everyone is, where did this requirement come from and who is responsible for it? Imagine trying yeah, to do yeah. that in the government. No, right? there's no way you could try to do that with government because basically that's that's like, you know, that's like a sort of from a management standpoint, preventing this sort of process, you know, bulking up from happening is sort of like cleaning your room. But saying like, okay, we're going to keep our room clean. And then you basically take, you know, and then you go to like, you know, fresh kills landfill and like you try to apply it. It just makes no sense. You wouldn't start with these organizations, right? You know, and you wouldn't even start with the people. And and Jeff Bezos makes the, makes the mistake when he wants to create private space of like starting with the people, from NASA, Boeing, whatever, and he creates this like giant clusterfuck that doesn't get anything done. Whereas when you look at, um, God, uh, who wrote this? There was someone, um, I think that old AutoCAD guy in Switzerland, what's his name? One of the AutoCAD founders, who's kind of an intellectual, wrote this piece about space in the 1990s, where he's like, you know, do you know who invented uh, the, the liquid-fueled rocket? That's right. Nazis. And so basically the, you know, the U S space program was essentially the Nazi space program, as you probably know. Right. So, so, 
And he's like, let's look at this Nazi space program. Okay, you know, they're Nazis, you know, but they were churning out these, like, liquid-fueled ballistic rockets, not orbital rockets, but still. And they're making, like, ten of them a day. Like, in fucking 1944, while being bombed to shit by the U.S. Air Force. Okay, yeah, you're using slave labor at a certain level. I mean, you know, people who work at SpaceX are pretty committed, too. You know, and um, they're not exactly being starved to death in underground tunnels. But it probably feels like that occasionally. And, like, they had a rocket industry going in the 1940s. Why couldn't we do this again? And now we have this again, right? And and so, you know, the way of operating when you're operating an effective organization, you know, first of all, you know, having a command-based organization really can be 10 to 100 to 1,000 times more effective than a process-based organization. And... Also, in a command-based organization, it actually doesn't matter what your employees think because they quickly develop loyalty to the organization. And, you know, SpaceX, when SpaceX decides, okay, our new rocket is going to be, you know, methylox instead of kerosene, it isn't like, oh, wow, what do all the engineers at SpaceX think about propellants? You know, you've got like the kerosene party and the methylox party, and they're like, they won't even eat lunch, you know, at the same table or something. They're always fighting each other. And you're just like, you know, this is a methylox shop. No, that's a top-down decision. You know, um, if Elon decides his, his rockets are going to run on Elmer's glue, right? Basically, you know, in like, you know, two, two and a half years, we're going to see an Elmer's glue powered rocket, you know, shooting out of Cape Canaveral, right? You know, and the, like, I mean, if it's possible, I suppose, all right, does that shit even burn? But, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of a sort of truly top-down organization, which runs on the principle of what the military calls mission orders, where basically your boss has a mission to, to, to solve. His goal is to execute on his mission. You know, you work for him. He breaks the mission into pieces and he's like, go get this submission done. But I'm not going to tell you how to do it because that would be micromanagement. And whereas in DC at everyone at every level is basically there to run a process. And maybe if the process doesn't fit or has to be changed or has to be adjusted, sort of the idea is you're trying to get rid of the human factor at every level. And the result is a system in which, you know, sort of there's still power. It's just swirling around these informal networks and personnel is policy. And the thing is, if you're actually basically coming in to Washington to create a startup government to say, okay, we're just shutting all this stuff down. Maybe there are little pieces that we can reuse. Maybe like the Coast Guard just needs to be like overhauled instead of dissolved, right? You know, but like, you know, the National Transportation Safety Board, you know, they're, they're basically, they're, there's, there's effective uncorrupted parts of the U.S. government. You want, don't want to get too enthusiastic about sort of declaring them. One thing you can do is basically take existing employees and just give my Q tests and recycle them into like areas of expertise that are totally distant from whatever they were doing last time. Um, you know, if you have a, you know, a lack of personnel, I don't really think you need a lot of people to actually run a modern government. And, you know, but the thing is when you're talking about doing this for real, you're just like, you find yourself asking questions. Why exactly does this country have 50 DMVs? 
do we need 50 DMVs? Is there like, are the, oh, the states are the laboratories of democracy. That's right, because, you know, we have this sort of different way of driving that we do in Maryland as opposed to California. Like, what, who the fuck would design this? Like, why do we need these state governments, right, in a time when basically these are just abstract lines on a map? These used to have, you know, people used to be more attached to these lines on the map than they are attached to, like, they're like countries in Western Europe today, but now they're just lines on the map. Or they're like, you know what they are is, like, where people have a real, like, political loyalty and really express pride is college football, right? So, you know, and I think that when you take down a lot of these universities, like, you're going to want to keep parts of them, and certainly you're going to want to keep, like, a lot of the, some of the STEM labs, you know, can sort of be preserved, um, but also also the college football teams. I think these some of these are great programs, like, you know, Ohio State, you know, University of Florida. You know, these are things that should not vanish, you know, in any regime change. These are kind of glories of the American spirit. And, and I think, you know, it'll just be like they have these names that are associated with these colleges that used to exist but like it's just a historical thing you know and and like like you know, like they're I, I still think that you know the gators can can play on you know even after yeah, florida I, State I went to michigan michigan uh, yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. exactly and and it sometimes feels like you know history is just almost getting ready to make that call right you know and 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 so you know when you when you talk about basically coming to the problem with this kind of um, Ataturk energy, I guess I would say. I had a good podcast appearance with, you know, Cenk Uyghur of, of the Young Turks. That's one of my favorite podcast appearances, actually, because, you know, Cenk is a, uh, he's a bully, uh, he's an idiot, uh, he's a communist, uh, and he's a Turk. And I was like, um, you know, for some reason, he asked me to go on his, his, his show. And I was like, okay, I'll go on and just make friends with him. And, and like, I, so I'm like, I tried to bond over Ataturk, you know, and I think it worked rather well. And, and the, uh, you know, most Americans don't understand the Ataturk reference, you know, but they do understand the FDR, ref, you know, you know, reference. And they do kind of understand that FDR, they wouldn't necessarily use the word dictator. It has this opprobrium, but, you know, they sort of look at the time and they're just like, wow, I have a really, a real sense that this person was really in charge of the government as he was. And, and he was also a good FDR, although he had many Trump like, you know, uh, characteristics was also a good manager. More specifically, he was good at delegating which is something, unfortunately, that Donald is really bad at. So, you know, how we get here is essentially, you know, FDR wins in 33. He becomes dictator for life. He sort of immediately starts trying to reorganize the whole country and also take over the world uh, or the whole government and take over the world. He does a lot of things. He has trouble, really. Like, his power isn't really absolute. And so he has trouble with taking – it takes time and really a war for him to take over a lot of the oldest – sort of refuges of the old regime. Like you might not know this, but in the, you know, the 40 in the thirties and forties, probably the most conservative part of the U S government is actually the state department. And, and, and so he has to basically sort of, you know, yeah, it's complicated, but, but of course he succeeds in turning it in, in, into, into what it is now. But in 44, he's running for president again because he's president for life, obviously, and he knows he's dying. 
Actually, everybody around him knows he's dying. The American public doesn't even know he's in a fucking wheelchair, but everyone around FDR knows he's dying. And and who does he pick? And his and so his his vice president in 1940 is of course Henry Wallace, you know, who is you know sort of as close to a pure shitlib as we would see the, see in these halls until Bernie Sanders, except that Wallace is an even more sort of an older aristocratic type of American shitlib because he's not even Jewish. And he's a progressive. He would later run in 48 after the split between the pro-Soviet, between, you know, American communists and and Soviet communists. He would run as a pro-Soviet communist in the 1948 election, which was really remarkable because it allowed us to count the number of communist shit libs in America. And I think it was between one and two million who voted for Wallace in 48. But, um, yeah, Wallace was absolutely committed to turning an America into what it is now. But instead of Wallace, who's like a real figure, he picks this guy, Harry Truman. And Harry Truman is basically kind of a nobody. He's uh, he's a machine politician from St. Louis. He's in the hands of the Pendergast mob. Uh, he's a nobody. He's not even really a new dealer. And people are like, why, why does FDR pick fucking Harry Truman? And, you know, there was a lot of, like, in politics in it. But fundamentally, you know, it brings me back to there's a story of the death of Alexander the Great. You know, this story, he's dying. He's 31 years old. Like, you know, he's conquered the world. All of his thugs, all of his guys are around him. He's clearly on his deathbed. And they all have one question. And it's the obvious question. Like, you know, my lord, who does your empire go to? And he, he looks at them. He takes one last breath. And he says, Tokratos, which means the strongest. And, and, and then he dies. And, and such is the story in any case. And, and, the, and that's how it goes down. You know? And, and with, with FDR, it's a little bit different. FDR is this American pharaoh. He's a world pharaoh. He's conquered the world because he still thinks of Stalin as his like, strong right arm. right? He thinks of Stalin as his guy up to his death. And after his death, one of the things that the people left in charge, like Tokratos realizes, no, actually Stalin is really not our guy and was never our guy. And we thought we were using him, but he thought he was using us. That realization, Washington is still conscious enough at that time for that realist, for it to like change its mind and understand that because being anti-Soviet in DC or London in 44 was the kiss of death. Um, and, uh, and and so they, they execute this. Stalin basically forces them to realize this. But, you know, he dies. And Truman, you know, who I guess he didn't even know about the atomic bomb project, is nobody is basically, you know, put behind FDR's desk. And the result of that is that FDR basically controlled the administration through all of these, like, informal wires and all of this, you know, kind of prestige and political, like, you know, horse trading and everything. And then you get this nobody in charge and, and all of this, like all of these cords snap. And instead of having, you know, sort of central power in the White House over the executive branch, power just goes, you know, it's like cutting the steering wheels, the cables from like the wheel of a giant ship, just power goes poof, right back down into the engines. And like, you know, it will never be seen in the White House again, and anyone who gets elected there basically has to surf, you know, off of the tremendous pool of competence 
that is the deep state. And the deep state is essentially just, you know, FDR's personal regime, like 75 years later. That's what that's all that we're looking at. You know, it's FDR's personal regime, which by electing, you know, choosing a nobody to succeed him, basically he made it permanent because basically he didn't leave any of that pharaonic power lying around for his successor. And the thing is, you got to understand these guys were good. These guys were startup quality guys. They really know how to get shit done. Okay. Yeah. You know, like maybe in retrospect, they shouldn't have conquered the world with the assistance of the Soviet Union. Maybe that was a bad idea, but they did that, you know, and then what are you going to do with that? Well, now you have two competing revolutionary empires instead of one. you got to steal the British and French empires and destroy them. And, you know, sort of life goes on from there. Actually, my favorite example from, uh, from this historical period that I saw was I was, this was in 15, 20 years ago, even I'm reading just really scurrilous South African blogs and trying to sort of make sense of the world in a way that makes no sense to me. And I come across this reference, someone claimed a lady researcher at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace developed a military plan for a joint U.S.-Soviet invasion of South Africa. And I was like, what the fuck? Can you imagine, like, the Marines and the Red Army, like, <laughs> joining hands in the Transvaal? You know, like, like insane, like, retro stuff. And so I'm like, I, this can't possibly be true. I'm going to find it. And I found it. I basically interlibrated loaned this document from the Carnegie Endowment from 1960 called South Africa and United Nations Collective Measures. And it is true that the military plan was only the last chapter. Like before that, there were various sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, that were going to be imposed on this racist, fascist regime, right? And basically, I think about it from the perspective of the author. It's 1960. It's, you know, 15 years later, you're like, let's get the band back together, right? And go, go kick some more Nazi ass, right? That's all that they're thinking. It's completely logical now that sort of time has passed for that sort of thinking. But has it really? Because Mandela... You know, and the ANC are both basically on the U.S. payroll and the Soviet payroll at the same time. Mandela is actually, after his death, acknowledged to have been on the Politburo of the SACP. And, like, actually, no, they actually basically did that. They just didn't do it in a super dramatic way. And, and you know, the U.S. and the USSR are also on the same side in the Suez crisis in '56 when it comes to ending colonialism, right? And so, you know, this whole, um, you know, when you basically sort of plug those things together into that narrative, and especially when you see the fundamental story of the U.S.-Soviet relationship as these are two cousins which are actually much closer to each other in some ways than even Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. And, you know, they have a more effective alliance than Nazi Germany and fascist Italy for that, you know, certainly uh, not to mention, not to mention Germany and Japan that like, I mean, you look at a map and you're like in 1941, if like Germany goes this way and Japan goes that way, the war is over and we're in Philip K. Dick world. Why doesn't that happen? Right. And so, you know, you're sort of revisiting these like really large questions of like, how did history end up here? How does, what is this thing actually 
Like, and once you start rebuilding these very different kinds of narratives, like you're, you're much more like, think about how different this is from the like sort of cartoon Marvel movie, you know, George Washington and the cherry tree story of like American history. And even conservatives are sort of caught like deeply in this history and they sort of don't really understand how thin the like legitimacy and self-confidence of this regime is. They don't expect, you know, understand how much, you know, like progressives have no, they don't believe in law. They don't believe in rules. They believe in outcomes. Right. And so when they start waving around, Oh my God, you broke the law. You broke the law. Like you trespassed on capital grounds, you know, into the oubliette for you, you know, like rats will be eating your toes for the next 10 years. You broke the law. We're a law abiding country. We respect the law in this country. Yes. Right. You know, and, 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 and you're just like, yeah, no, really. I just can't really take that very seriously. And the, I can take it seriously in terms of you having power, but the thing is breaking, you know, it's the things that like, I mean, it's just like, you know, historians from a different time will be like utterly baffled. There'll be like Donald Trump has 75 million supporters and at least 25 million of them are armed. Like who could resist that? Like how could how could that lose? Right. We would just snap a finger and like, you know, we'd be jailing those 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 radicals and red agitators again, you know, and and like Curtis, I'm curious. Go ahead, Eric, if you have one, I have one. So. Curtis, I think I've, I'm what, done. I've done ranting here, so you can you can fire away. The rants are yeah. You concede that we're we're making progress here. Like the the venture capital startup approach is always start something new. Elon didn't start a new Twitter; he took over Twitter. Would would you uh, concede that Elon has had some success in making a in, in doing an actual takeover of Twitter? And why couldn't that happen with some of these other institutions like Harvard? You just take over the board. Boom, new, uh, you, you take over, you know, I think it's, first of all, you know, I don't think the Twitter thing was, was, has been all that well done or conceived. Um, but more generally the problem with, um, limited or incremental steps, you know, like my favorite example of this was when I was talking to, some rich crypto person and he's like, you know, what if, what if, what if, you know, what if our friends just buy the times or the post or something like that? Right. It's a company you can buy it. Right. I'm like, well, actually the times is not a company. It's a fifth generation hereditary monarchy with a special share structure set up to keep the, you know, the, the, the precious blood of the Salzburgers, uh, you know, in charge, but, um, setting that aside. Okay. What if you buy the super voting shares before the tech bros? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, in a way, you know, we're still a monarchy because the most prestigious and powerful institution in the country is a fifth generation absolute hereditary monarchy. Like, actually, the real problem with the Times is not that it's a monarchy. It's that, you know, punch or bitch or pinch or whatever the latest Salzburger's name is actually a weak king. Um, and, and that's caused, that's, that's the sort of the cause of a lot of like woke craziness of the Times, uh, is the weakness of the latest Salzburger. And, um, then again, nobody, you know, nobody associates this with, you know, politics, my God. Right. But the thing is, if you buy the Washington Post, the way 
Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Jeff Bezos doesn't own the Washington Post. He sponsors the Washington Post because it only appears to be a top-down organization. Actually, the Times is the sort of the last of the organizations where the publisher, through like his historical Dois de Sonneur, you know, sort of actually controls the news desk. I don't think that A.G. Salzberger gets to, like, bang any hot reporters he wants, but, you know, probably he does anyway. Uh, you know, and, and the, the uh, probably if you're a girl reporter and get hired at the Times, they're just like, you know, if A.G. comes by, you know, like, just, you know, <laughs> let things happen, you know, just don't, don't. Um, but um, I'm sorry, A.G., this is, this is total, you know, uh, I'm joking. This is not, this is not slander in any way. And I'm sure he's a very chaste man. And the, the, uh, probably doesn't even do Coke. And the, and, and so what would happen if you took over the board of Harvard or you bought the Washington Post or any of these things is you would realize that it was not a top down organization. And you would basically, the way in which you would realize that it is not a top-down organization is you would basically take, you know how, how, how progs, how irritating it is that these people pretend to be the underdog all the time when they actually have all the fucking power in the world. Give them a chance to actually be the underdog in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you know, they, they're having Trump as president did this, you know, suddenly, you know, they all like, they want to feel like rebels, you know, all these like wine on drinking their Chardonnay, you know, and suddenly they can, they're just like, and they're not just wine on drinking Chardonnay. They're holding a cell. They're the resistance, you know, they're going to Marie Louise, you know, where should we put the, the, the bombs on the track to stop, you know, the Trump's ponzers, you know, you know, we must like, you know, like it's crazy. And, and like the revenues of the times, like I think doubled or tripled during the Trump administration revenues of the ACLU went 10 X up 10x, you know, because these resistance organizations are actually, they're going to need to function, they're going to need to protect us against Trump, Trump's handmaid's tale, Trump and Reich, you know, that he's about to, right, and of course Trump, you know, meanwhile just kind of wants to be on TV and thinks being president will be good for his brand and has some, like, old opinions from, like, 1955, because he remembers 1955, right, you know, and, and that's all that you're, you're looking at there, right, and so the thing is, what you're doing when you like, you know, imagine, I mean, imagine how far taking over the board of Harvard, the board of overseers or something. Great name, great name. Um, and the, have they thought about changing that? You know, you know, like, because that's like, uh, I think they were getting rid of the word master, but like, I think overseer, you know, this little like, you know, you're just like, why, why am I getting this like Django Unchained vibe here, right? Ma master you know, branch and GitHub canceled. Master bedroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Board of master bedroom. Board of overseers. Oh yeah, yeah. And and not only not only is Harvard. Um, you know, not only is, is the New York Times uh, an absolute hereditary monarchy, which we definitely need to keep because it's the newspaper of record, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's also the case that, I mean, sort of definitions of slavery vary. I don't know if you've read the great philosopher Robert Nozick's Tale of a Slave. You know, you'll find that, you know, you have this word, actually, you can't even say slaved anymore. They'll probably have to change it in future editions of anarchy and utopia and state. They'll have to say the tale of an enslaved person. And the, the, um, and, and the, like, one of the definitions of slavery, of course, or one of the forms of slavery is debt slavery. Y'all are familiar with debt slavery, right? You know, you work in the company town, you know, 
like, well, you got to pay off this, you know, you, you borrowed your tools from the master, uh, from the, the, uh, the, the, the main, <laughs> you know, you borrowed your tools from the main branch. You've got, you have got a debt to the main branch. You've got to pay that off. Uh, and one of the boundaries between is this debt slavery, you know, or is it not debt slavery is, of course, the modern institution of bankruptcy. Debts are dischargeable in bankruptcy. You don't go to the fleet prison if you can't pay your debts the way you did in London in the 1680s. And so we don't have debt slavery. We don't have debt slavery in America because we have a, a very uh, effective bankruptcy system and um, and debts can be discharged um, by anyone in bankruptcy with one exception. And who gets that exception? Oh my gosh, it's Harvard, you know, and, and like, board of overseers. Look, the board of overseers basically are like going to make you pick cotton until you pay off them student loans, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, the more the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? The board of overseers. But suppose you manage to capture the board of overseers, and you get your guys on the board of overseers, and they start like overseeing. And they're doing that overseeing. They're cracking the whip. They're like, you know, you know, we're going to pick something else in cotton today. We're going to go out and plant, you know, Belgian endives, uh, you know, instead of cotton. And we're going to pick these endives, right? You know, and what you'll find is that basically, you know, first of all, you just like the number of people at Harvard you need to shoot. If you're really, let's say you're actually trying to de-wokeify Harvard. Okay, what that means is that basically you're trying to get rid of progressivism at Harvard just as uh, thoroughly as if the progressives took over Harvard and it was a racist school from top to bottom, scientific racism, the, you know, the Nordic, you know, everything, everything celebrated, everything had gone full Madison Grant and like you have just, you know, yeah, um, you have whole departments of scientific racism, you know, physical anthropology is the queen of the sciences there at Harvard. Uh, also, when you're hiring a professor, you want to look into, you know, is he a good Nordic stock? You know, does he have the right, uh, you know, opinions? Any trace of like, you know, has he praised the eight-hour workday at, at some point? Because, you know, I know who else praises the eight-hour workday. That's right, you know, like, you know, communists, right? Any kind of homosexuality, of course, you know, right? You know, and so when you're imagining dewokifying Harvard to the same extent that basically progressives would want to purge, you know, Madison Grant style, like H.P. Lovecraft, 1930s, you know, Nordic scientific racism, whatever the fuck. Obviously, we've learned a lot about race science since then. But the, the, I'm not going to suggest that, you know, yeah, I mean, they didn't even know what DNA was, right? So, you know, what you're seeing is that the level, the correct historical, if you're actually trying to do that, then the correct historical analogy, there's really only one really good one, which is the denazification of Germany. And if you go and look at what we did at the denazification of Germany, and you're imagining applying that treatment to Harvard, first of all, there's no point in applying it only to Harvard. You know, no, denazification was across the entire society. And basically, it just re, um, 
it restructured kind of the structure of status and honor in that society such that any association with the National Socialist German Workers Party was a huge black mark on your career. And any participation in, you know, resistance of any kind was a huge, you know, merit, right? If you're talking about reconstructing Harvard under those terms, okay, and, you know, for example, like, you know, they, in 45, they're like, we're going to destroy all Nazi architecture. If there's a building that looks too Nazi, you know, they actually pulped. They pulp all the Nazi books. They're like, literally, we're going to take the, the output of Nazi publishing and we're not going to burn it for the camera. No, we're going to like fucking pulp it and make toilet paper out of it. Right. You know, that level of they really came in with like full Stalin energy. Oh, no. You know, we want these people to be, you know, compliant. So we're going to just like starve them and keep them on 800 calories a day. I don't think you'd really it was excessive. Right. You know, it was excessive, but they were really determined not to err on the side of not doing enough. And and as a result, you know, Germany is like the most docile country in the world today. They barely have teeth. They can barely even eat tofu, right? You know, and like from this nation of like, you know, conquering carnivores, like you have this just profoundly, it's amazing they can even reproduce, right? You know, and if you're talking about basically doing that to wokeness at Harvard, okay, that's one thing. You install this new like board of directors Board of Overseers, you know, you get some real, real throwback overseers up there, you know, um, you know, guys where like Jeff Davis would be like, well, it's a little, little bit extreme, you know, Patrick there, you know, and, and get them to oversee the new Harvard. All of that energy of like, I'm resisting, I'm resisting, I'm resisting this, like, you know, it's just like you, you're doing something small and weak. And when you do something small and weak, like nobody is on your side. You know, the, the best answer to this, there's a, there's a famous, um, should be more famous, I guess. There was a conversation in 1942 when the U.S., where did, where did the U.S. invade first in 1940? What was the first country the U.S. invaded in World War II? Italy. Or just uh, Morocco. Africa? Morocco, 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 yeah. Morocco, obviously Morocco. Right. Yeah. And so the U.S. basically in Operation Torch invades North Africa because Pearl Harbor. Right. Um, and so if, you, if you're like, where, where did the idea of invading Iraq for 9-11 come from? It's like, OK, you know, this is like this is real American tradition because of because because of Pearl Harbor, we invade North Africa. North Africa is part of this interesting idea that the Germans had, which was a really stupid idea of like, let's create like Vichy France, which will be France, but kind of friendly with us, but kind of neutral. But like Casablanca, Casablanca, right. So um, basically in order, and, and the French have a considerable sort of military there, but that military, of course, was, you know, used to being on our side in World War One. Of course, the British did this insane thing where as soon as France falls in Iran, they basically just like, attack and destroy the like French Navy in North Africa. So it's complicated, right? And there's some, some bad blood there. So this American OSS guy goes ashore in a little boat and he lands and he goes to the French general in charge of North Africa. And he's like, just hypothetically, you know, if we did, I'm not saying, but if we did come ashore, you know, 
what, what, what would you do? And the general's like, well, you know, that depends. If you, uh, if you send a company, um, we'll kill them. Um, if you send an army corps, uh, you know, we'll, we'll fight them. Uh, and if you send a whole army, uh, if you, we'll surrender to them. And in fact, we'll join them. And the thing is, basically, when you act with a small amount of power, power sort of naturally goes to everybody wants to be on the winning team. Everybody always wants to be on the winning team. That is their deepest, that is a desire that is far more fundamental than ideology. It's the way in which everyone in Germany and Japan in 1945 goes from being a fanatical Nazi to a fanatical democratic socialist. Everyone wants to be on the winning team. And so when you act weakly with power, you know, there's this old um, British from back when, you know, the old Ministry of Munitions days when the British could actually run things. There's this British metaphor, which is grasping the nettle. Have you heard about this? So a nettle is a stinging plant. Everyone's stung by a nettle. It really fucking hurts. Supposedly, I'd love for one of you guys to go off and try this. Supposedly, if you grab a nettle firmly, you compress the stalking, you, you, you compress the little injectors, and so it actually doesn't sting you. So if you grasp it firmly, you can just pull it up. But if you, like, brush against it, it's going to, like, make you feel the pain. Right? And, and power is like that. And so basically, when you sort of act in these kind of weak, marginal kinds of ways – you know, it's almost like what Rufo is doing, at least, you know, or, you know, with trying to get someone thrown, someone who's basically disposable. And there's, I mean, how many Claudian gays are there? Like they're, you know, like uh, treating the population of Claudian gays. Is that a win? Is that like, you know, you're like, this is my strategy of attrition. You know, it will take approximately 50,000 years. Right. And, you know, and, the, you know, what you're basically doing when you do that, okay, he sort of played by the rules to some extent. He didn't try to use any kind of new forms of power. He just, you know, got enough kind of shaming energy there that this person became a liability and had to be thrown under the bus, like good for his fundraising. Not really a step toward taking over the Harvard Board of Overseers. And the, I don't know what it takes, you know, I, I think Harvard is now part of like Pritzker run America, right? You know, um, and, um, you know, what does it take to get the Pritzkers in jail, right? You know, and like, really, what does it take to get the Pritzkers in jail? Because I'm sure they're guilty of something, you know, uh, I mean, everybody's guilty of something. That's what we're finding no, you don't out build with this a hotel sort of fortune without a, a few broken eggs. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You well, know, they, they didn't and, build and, and it was inherited. But. They inherited it. Right. You know, I'm sure I'm sure there's something, you know, and maybe some election tampering and like, who knows? I mean, it's just like, I mean, this is one of the things about sort of America's shit lib empire is that what you see with like stuff in the Hunter Biden, you know, corruption world. At this point, I mean, the Clinton Foundation stuff was pretty brazen, but the way the Bidens operated, they just realized that nobody's looking. Nobody's going to prosecute them. Nobody even cares. They can do whatever the fuck they want. And even when the fucking New York Post is like, you know, reports on them, they're like, you know, who cares? It's the New York Post. It's not even a real newspaper. You know, and like what influence does the New York Post have? Like who, you know, right. It's all a paper I mean, tiger. It's, and it's, it's real now. They just wait a year and they say, yeah, it was real. Yeah. 
Yeah, who cares? Who cares? You know, it's like admitting that Mandela was actually on the on the you know the South African Politburo. I mean, it's it's Coventry Patmore territory. You know, uh, so, once so, the, you know, the I, truth. I want to go back to one thing about so so if we take kind of like the mainstream right or this idea that we're going to win victories, you know, like here or oh, there. these little victories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you point out that that kind of like okay, if you a are just disconnected from just like basic history. And just a study of the understanding of how does power work? Where is that disconnect? Because what I feel like is what I see from the right is a little bit of like um, they kind of grew up under the Marvel version of American history as well. And they it it kind of is like, oh, well, everything is schoolhouse rock. So if we just follow the set of rules and we win Mm -hmm. and we get the institutions, we're now in charge. And we make when we make our bill become a law. Yeah. Where is the disconnect of? You know, ostensibly, these people are intelligent and truth-seeking, yet all this other kind of information is out there, and and there's a pretty wide gap between where you are and and where they are. And so where where do you attribute that difference? Uh, Jumping that that gap is really hard. And, you know, because the thing is, it's old. It's not a new, like, you know, one of my favorite little historical examples is that um, in in 1940, (laughs) I don't know exactly how the internals of this, but, you know, you know, like, like, are, are you familiar with, with the concept of, um, um, uh, Nimrata Rondawa, also known as Nikki Haley. Um, and, um, you know how they're, you ever see that movie mean girls, you know, they're trying to like make Nikki Haley a thing, you know, and I'm like, Nikki Haley's not going to happen. Right. Stop, stop, stop pretending Nikki Haley's not, is going to happen. It's not going to happen. But the thing is, you know, the ability to sort of, of this kind of Republican machine to like make Nikki Haley happen goes back to the times when that two things you've got to remember. One is that the Republicans actually were originally the old left-wing Boston patrician party. And so even in FDR's day, there's a lot of like progressive Republican energy because he basically made, you know, it would be as if like Trump managed to run, well, maybe RFK Jr., right? If like somehow Trump managed to put a populist in charge of the Democrats so that somehow it was a populist versus populist, you know, election. I actually like the way Fetterman seems to be growing a new brain. Maybe we could use him, uh, you know. I think it would be amazing to run a joke Fetterman campaign and just like, like meme Fetterman 24 energy. Right. You know, and, and the, um, and so, but the thing is, you know, one of the classic ways of stealing an election is basically to run um, your guy on both parties. Right. And the amazing thing is that in 1940 with Wendell Wilkie, this was done. In fact, Wilkie, only became a Republican in 1940. He'd been a Democrat. And they basically, essentially, FDR basically chose a member of his own party to run against him in the general election. Moreover, they agreed on the base, the same basic point, which was, you know, internationalism or like American world domination, right? There was, you know, so they managed in the 1940 election, they managed to, to, to put two anti-isolationist candidates in the election against, you know, what polling would tell you was like an 80 to 85 percent isolationist America. Okay, once that's done, like when something like that happens, the idea that you're like gonna get back to like democracy without like 
sort of acknowledging that like, okay, that thing happened. 48, same thing, or 52, rather. In 48, they basically, Eisenhower, who's a New Deal political general, who was basically a colonel when he was started the war and was basically yanked with George Marshall up the um, up the ladder because he seemed like a competent staff officer and his politics were right. I think he just followed Milton Eisenhower's lead, basically. In 19, um, in 19, you know, 40, in 1948, he's spoken of as a Democratic candidate. In 52, he somehow appears on the Republican ballot. And he's like, Ike, oh, yeah, Ike, you know, the really American America, right? You know, and of course, he basically, you know, cements the nature of the New Deal as a permanent bipartisan thing by, like, muscling out the last sort of real old Republican who was tapped. And the, um, and so you've got to understand that in a world where, you know, the schoolhouse rock thing has been fake literally for even the life lifespan of the oldest fucking boomer in Arizona, right? You know, acknowledging that and acknowledging that like, no, the system is not and has never been the real thing that people claim it is. And is like this sort of enormous, you know, it's, it's like a, a quantum, you know, sort of barrier that needs to be leaped over. And I think the best sort of tropes in today's political world are the things that are just kind of disconnecting or just alienating people from this sort of crazy like frame. But the more you sort of take it seriously and believe it's real, the problem is that you basically remember the Tea Party, not their original Tea Party, which was like an Antifa riot, but like the the Tea Party of like 15 years ago. You know, they're like, oh, we're going to throw the deep state in the in the tea or something like that. Right. You know, and and like and and. You know, all you get all these people excited, they're going to do something, they're going to elect whatever, whatever, and nothing happens. And it's like you have this, or in, in France, the Gilets Jaunes, which, you know, finally got killed by COVID. They were like, you know, France is always, you know, if we can get enough people in the street, like the government in France will change. They get enough people in the street, nothing happens. We're like, we'll do it again. Two, bigger and better. They're on to like Act 56 by the time like COVID happens and like nothing happens. This is the way to generate the phenomenon in psychology known as learned helplessness, where you basically, you know, you prevent people, present people with what user interface experts call an affordance. You're like, here's a knob, turn the knob, anything will happen. You're in power, you know, the people are in charge, the people can turn the knob, right? You turn the knob, nothing happens. You're like, why didn't that work? Why you fiddle with the knob, you're like, oh, it's like the closed door button on the elevator, right? And so, you know, what you have still, you know, with all of these kind of, you know, whether it's Rufo or Trump or whatever, they're all just like furiously stabbing the closed door button as if it's going to work. And there's a sort of sense also that, they have sort of this sense of like snowballing where you're just like, they know they're in the right. You know, America is basically built on the just world fallacy. And that's like amendment zero is the just world fallacy. And they're like, why, you know, in this great country with this great political system, best in history, nobody else in, in, in history has anything to teach us at all. But why is everything broken? I'm like, well, if you can get like one little crystal of like shit working properly, then it's like a super saturated solution of brokenness. 
And like the just world theory, it's not a fallacy, it's a theory, will reassert itself. The just world law will reassert itself. God will act. And then everything will become like, right. So it's like, you know, the new college thing in Florida, the, you know, that shit show is such a great example of it where they're like, okay, we're going to take over this like shitty little Florida version of Reed College, which somehow the governor has the power to control and we're going to put it in the hands of, of conservatives and it's going to become, and, you know, it's just like, dude, if you want to create a new thing, create a new thing. And, you know, what actually happened there, what's currently happening is they basically said, well, you know, who are we even going to get to apply to the next, you know, semester of new college when basically all of the like hippie intellectuals, whether students and professors have fled. And the answer that they came up with was, I believe, a baseball players. They're like, okay, you know, the nerds are out. So we're going to, the future of like conservative education starts here with like a bunch of like jocks who got like 975 on their SATs. Right. You know, and, and like, and you're just like, what, what are you doing? Where are you even going with this? Like, you know, is this good for Florida? Is it good for baseball? Is it like, you know, like, my God, are you going to like hire like the best conservative, you know, intellectuals to come in and teach like Straussian political theory to these, you know, bonehead catchers, you know, like, 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 what, what are you even doing? You know, and it's just like, you're just like thrashing around pretending to do something. And like, when you thrash with like sufficient energy and get these sort of like little, what look like kind of winny wins, you can raise money off of like, we're at a tipping point, you know, the whole thing is about to super saturate and wokeism is on its way out, you know, and I'm just like, you know, like, I just like, it's embarrassing, you know, and, and like, I feel like I had to like, you know, pick a fight with Rufo who like actually likes me, like, it's really unfortunate, right? You know, but I, I, I don't normally do this, but I'm just like, I have to, you know, I have to offer some kind of weak protest to this ridiculous, like, you know, like, you know, he's basically saying, like, let's do McCarthyism, but like as farce, you know, and and like, you know, in, in the, under the Marxian principle that everything has to repeat as farce. And it's just like, you know, you may score some wins because Claudine Gay is so much lower an intellectual figure than like Alger Hiss. But, you know, prosecuting Alger Hiss didn't even really win anything. And this was the guy who founded the United Nations, right? You know, and like, did you get anything out of that? Did we ever figure out who lost China? Like, no, you know, and it's just like at a certain point when you're just like willfully, you know, what you're doing when you do this stuff is one of two things. Either you're basically disowning, you know, your grandparents who made the attempt to like, do McCarthyism and have a John Birch society or whatever. And you're just like, wow, those people, right. You know, I totally disowned like many of them were, they were racist. That was allowed, but they were, you know, but we're not like that. You know, we're having, you know, but no wokeism, we're definitely going to beat wokeism and progressivism. And we might even call it communism sometimes, you know, but like, we're not like that, you know, right. And that's why we're going to win because basically we are, we are good liberal values, right. Because we're, actually we're, we're wokeism is, yeah, we're enlightened. Actually, wokeism is 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 in contradiction with liberal values. It's become quite illiberal. Why not like bring it back to like liberalism? You know, at that point, you're really at like real socialism has never been tried or something. You know, and and it's just so like, you know, it's just embarrassing because the thing is that if you don't know this, you know, you're doing something naive, and if you do know this 
you're definitely a grifter. And if you're sort of in between those things where you're just like, you're sort of naive, but you're just like, well, like maybe like my wife is fucking around on me, but like, I don't really want to know. So like, you know, wow, she left her email open, but I'm not going to look at it, you know? And, and, and like the, the, you know, it's embarrassing and it's kind of doomed and it's really perpetrating this sort of incredibly fraudulent thing on people. And it's like when you, Curtis, I, I unfortunately have to run because I have to watch my kids. Um, but I think this merits at some point in the future, if you'll come back, a part two, because I want to talk about the app. Yeah. I think your idea for the this app. app. The app is the, the, app, app is the, the solution. App. The app is the solution. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, in general, I like I, what I would, would say is like when you're thinking in terms of like, I can't believe in this system, you get to, I have, this system has to be hacked somehow. And when you're hacking a system, you're basically trying to make it operate in a way that it's not supposed to operate. You're trying to, you know, create what what security engineers call a weird machine. And like when you basically open your mind to say, no, this system can't be reformed to be something that actually works. It needs to be hacked out of existence. And at the same time as it's being hacked out of existence, it needs to be replaced with something else. And this process is not going to look anything like any like stupid 20th century LARP. And it's certainly not going to involve like, you know, um, fighting in the streets because Americans are such pussies that we can't even fight anymore. And, you know, it has to be pussy friendly, really. And the, and then, you know, once you're sort of thinking in terms of this, like, pussy-friendly coup, you know, essentially, which is like a sort of hack of the system, you're just in a such a different context in terms of political techniques and goals and, like, understanding of how to do things. And, yeah, I think that's a good, you know, now that we've sort of talked about the problem, we can we can come back and... Uh, and, and and be positive and, and talk about positive solutions. I'm a very positive person. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for Curtis. Uh, co- thanks right. so much for Curtis Thank coming you. on. Thank you great. for coming on, Curtis. All right. All right. All right. Next time I'll let you talk. Take care. <laughs> hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. Wondering what on earth is happening up in space? They just dropped a series on the satellite economy. Or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos? They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people. Movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.